Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Fair Data Podcast, where we discuss all things fair, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. I'm Rory McNeil, host of the Fair Data Podcast, and my guest today is Natasha Simons. Natasha, among many other things, is Associate Director, Data and Services for the Australian Research Data Commons, the ARDC. Natasha, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much, Rory. It's it's great to be here. I'm a I'm a fan of the podcast, and um, you've had some wonderful guests so far. So I feel I'm in I'm in excellent company, and um, I hope that uh, I'll say something of interest to your users. Oh, fantastic! I'm I'm, I'm confident that you will. Um, you're involved in so many different ways in organizations and initiatives relating to fair and research data management. It's actually hard to know where to start. But let's jump in with a, a big picture perspective. For those who may not be aware, can you give us a quick sketch of the Australian Research Data Commons or ARDC? You know, what are its objectives and some of the main approaches to supporting research? Yes, certainly. Uh, So the ARDC is funded by the Australian Federal Government to give Australian researchers competitive advantage through data. So our mission is to accelerate research and innovation by driving excellence in the creation, analysis and retention of high quality data assets. And we don't do this alone, Rory. We do it in partnership with many, many other research organisations, mostly in Australia, but also across the world. And um, the way that we do that is we build infrastructure to support data management and data sharing um, across for the Australian research community and industry as well um, to access nationally significant data intensive digital research infrastructure platforms, skills and collections of high quality data. So we're a national research infrastructure provider and we facilitate partnerships to develop basically a singular or coherent uh, research environment that enables our researchers to find, access, contribute, and effectively use services to to maximise uh, the quality and impact of their research. So we are funded through a program called NCRIS, uh, the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Strategy that was founded by our federal government back in 2006. And we've had several editions of what's uh, known as a National Research Infrastructure Roadmap. Um, And we just had the 2021 roadmap released in 2022. Um, And that roadmap's very exciting because the federal government is going to invest another $900 million over five years on tools, technology and skills to make Australian research even more globally competitive through the NCRIS program. So um, ARDC is one of, as one of those um, NCRIS program uh, recipients is very excited about this. I'm not sure how many exactly in NCRIS at the moment, uh, around 23, I think, different um, institutions, organisations, agencies are funded through NCRIS. And so we're also a legal entity that was formed in July 2018, and we came together as a merger of three existing digital research infrastructure capabilities, which I think are are known internationally. Uh, One of them is the Australian National Data Service, or ANS. Uh, It's been around on the scene since about 2008. Um, Also, Nectar is another one, and Research Data Services. So uh, Nectar provides cloud services for research, and Research Data Services is the big data um, uh, storage and retention capacity. So uh, we've really come together, though, the three organisations under the leadership of our CEO, Rosie Hicks, 
um, and in 2009, uh, 2019, sorry, um, we became a company that's uh, limited by guarantee and registered with Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. So we currently have 20 organisational members and growing. So that gives you a pretty much an overview of ARDC um, and probably a little bit about where we sit um, within the Australian research ecosystem. Fantastic. So that really helps to uh, helps to set the scene, and, and we're, let's delve into some of the some of the details in in a bit. Um, how did you become involved with the ARDC? Uh, well, I think for the last ten plus years, I've been involved in national scale research infrastructure development, um, and also, of course, uh, in a, on an international scale as well. Um, I mean, my main motivation is that the more research data we can get out there that is findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable, the more we can get that research out there, the more we can solve the big challenges of our time. So I'm very much motivated by the bigger picture, but I'm also someone who likes to do things and make good things happen um, to be able to get us there. So how this all came about, I don't think you can kind of plan for these roles to come about in your career because, you know, uh, these things have evolved, really. These opportunities evolved. I mean, ARDC wasn't around, uh, you know, uh, to, to be able to plan a future in, really. So uh, I think I was living in Canberra and working at the National Library around uh, 2008, 2009, where I was managing a service called Australian Research Online. And that service uh, collected the metadata records about Australian research from Australian institutional research repositories, so university repositories. Um, and I didn't know it then, but that would really lead to my pathway into ARDC because that was about national scale research infrastructure and I got to know the problems that the institutional repository community was dealing with and some of the challenges in developing good infrastructure to support research and the discovery of research outputs. So while I was working on that program, ANDS came along uh, they, as I mentioned, was one of the three organisations that came together to form ARDC, and they funded a project uh, led by the National Library to develop persistent identifiers for researchers. So this is in the days pre-ORCID, so we didn't have ORCID around then, and we were looking for a persistent identifier on a national scale using existing infrastructure, and the vision was to link these researcher identifiers with the data collection records that ANS was collecting in the national data catalogue uh, called Research Data Australia. So all different universities would contribute into this uh, national data catalogue and all of the researchers would need an identifier so that you could persistently Ident you could say this person is not with that same name, is not the same person as this, um, and you could link them with their research outputs in the way that ORCID does that now. Um, so I uh, was selected to be the business analyst on that project and for a period of time I was the project manager on that. And uh, Dr Adrian Burton, who was then a director of ANS and is now my director at ARDC, was on the project board and sponsor and he's now my boss and we've been working together on research infrastructure since then and it's just, um, I think he's an all-round inspiring uh, person uh, for me in my career and I'm really uh, pleased to be able to work with him directly now uh, for the last couple of years. Um, so anyway, as part of that project at National Library, I got to work with early adopters of that uh, identifier 
at Griffith University in Brisbane and they had an opening for a research data specialist in their e-research team and I got that role and moved back to Brisbane with my family and I quickly went from specialist to senior project manager where I worked on a project called the Griffith Research Hub which was building a researcher profile system so that you could link researchers with their data and other outputs. Um, and it was based on Vivo. It was one of those early linked data triple store models. Um, and I worked with some fantastic uh, technical uh, developers on that project at Griffith, uh, such as Mark Fallou, who's now one of the directors at the University of Melbourne, and Jan Hattenhausen, who's just a, an amazing uh, software developer to have in e-research. And that, that uh, research hub won awards from Stanford University for innovation in research libraries. And it also won a national innovation award, award from one of our library bodies as well called Bala. So that project was part funded by ANS and because it was so successful, they asked me to join their team. And I said, yes. Uh, so that was back in March, 2014. Um, and I started in ANS as a research data specialist and now the, I'm the associate director of data and services. So. And uh, that's how it all came about. Wow. Yeah. So very. Um, yeah. Very appropriate. And it sounds like you. It was a quite a broad. Uh, a broad set of of experiences and perspectives. Uh, uh, and uh, that you brought to the to brought to the role. So perfect. So and what's the current focus of your of your work at at uh, with your senior role at ARDC and how how does it fit into ARDC's priorities? Mm. Okay. Uh, so I lead a fairly large geographically dispersed teams, meaning they're all around Australia. So most of our calls are on Zoom and we don't get to meet together uh, too much in person, especially with how uh, COVID has made our lives the last couple of years. Um, but the team has two major focuses. So the first one is the implementation of the National Data Assets Program. So uh, the National Data Assets Pro Program is around a $20 million investment from ARDC over several years. We have 200 plus partner organisations and around 60 projects, co-investment projects that are part of this initiative. Um, and the focus of that is developing uh, uh, data assets, which are strate strategic collections of data with the governance standards, policy, technology services, skills and community that are required to make data fair for Australian researchers. So the point of this is that um, data collections are really hard for researchers to access, use and combine if the data isn't fair um, because the data is managed poorly or it's restrictive or there are local access conditions. You know, there's a lack of machine readability, there's incompatible metadata standards and formats, you know, there's no license attached. I think we know these problems and this is one of the motivators for FAIR. And in this program, we are looking at building national scale data collections. Um, and that can't be realised uh, uh, without the ARDC. The ARDC is a catalyst um, in building that um, national scale infrastructure and in initiating these co-investment projects. Um, so they're collaborative projects and the outcomes is that we will, we will have these long-lived national data assets that can leverage existing research and administrative investment 
and, um, you know, be ongoing, be long-lived basically. And the beneficiaries for those, so they solve very real-world problems, which I'll talk about later, um, but the beneficiaries are, you know, the Australian researchers, policymakers, industry, public sector, research organisations and institutions. So there's a number of projects. So that's quite a huge program um, of work that the team does. Can I just ask, a, Natasha, can I just ask a question here? So these data collections, are they... Um, I assume they're they're domain specific. Are they are they project based or institution based or can you give us a sense for an example perhaps of what kind of collections would be like? Yeah, sure. Uh, so they're multi, well, so we've, these are in a range of disciplines and some of them are multidisciplinary. Um, so for example, we have a genomes to phenomes project. Um, that's two different areas really combining together. Um, and uh, there's a huge range of organisations involved. So it's not restricted to any one type. So there's, and we have basically, we currently have five programs under National Data Assets to initiative to give you an idea. So one of them is called Public Sector Bridges. And in that program, we're funding projects that take public sector data and allow it to scale nationally and be combined with other public sector and research data um, that enables uh, researchers to act access a data asset at a national scale. So one example for that is we're building an, a national air health quality database. There isn't one in Australia, believe it or not. So how can you make uh, national decisions about 
pollution levels and things like that if you don't have an air quality database. So you might have some of that data collected in Queensland departments, one of our states, another collected in another state, but they're not described the same way. They're, you, you know, you have to be in Queensland to access the Queensland one, for example, um, just, just, just hypothetically, you know, and so our program is about combining that data and so it's about the services that you need to be able to combine that data nationally, the policies and the standards around it. So we, a lot of the challenge in this program is dealing with cross-jurisdictional data. So how can these data be combined? Who allows that to happen and what technology can we develop to allow that to happen and so that we can have this national scale data asset. So, so that's one example of um, a very many projects in this area. We have another one particularly focused on health studies that I'd like to talk about a bit later and another one uh, where we have 25 universities collaborating out of Australia's 43 odd universities collaborating to build one, to develop one national uh, research data management framework, uh, which is an incredible really <laughs> if we're able to achieve that amazing yeah well i mean everything you've said uh, is is uh, is on point here but you know one of the one of the you just uh, kind of uh, fulfilling my my um uh, you know what i understand about uh, about australia but one of the interesting things i find about the australian approach to research data management is that at least to an outsider it seems so joined up and everything you've said is is kind of confirming that um, so the ARDC is obviously at the heart of it, but there are lots of other organizations are too, and two that I'm aware of um, are CSIRO and, and RNET uh, are also in the mix. And I know you also, as you've just said, you work closely with the universities. So could you comment on the, the kind of the generally joined up approach? And perhaps I'd be interested uh, in, in particular uh, to hear about your relationship with, with CSIRO uh, and, and what does CSIRO add to the, the national research capabilities. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, just before we do this, I'll just um, just wanted to add to the previous set, uh, question because I'd be remiss if I didn't, that the second area that my team focuses on is the provision of national information infrastructure. And by that, we mean research vocabulary service that we have, uh, the national data catalog um, and identif persistent identifier services as well. And they're, they're, they're all relevant here, particularly because they generally involve international collaboration, you know, uh, particularly on the identifier services. Um, but so onto your question about the joined up, and this is, I guess, part, I mean, that, I guess, underpins, you know, any joined up approach really is that national inf um, information infrastructure. So one example of that is that institutional underpinnings program. I think uh, that's, uh, you know, we're going uh, I don't know if it's where angels fear to tread or boldly going where no one has gone before, but to try and get 25 universities in a room to agree on something, um, particularly a research data management framework, is just a massive undertaking. Uh, and I think ARDC has, uh, is leading that uh, program and as part of national data assets. And it, it is going particularly well. I mean, we're covering things like, you know, what kind of policies do you need in place? Uh, how do you do data appraisal? What kind of skills programs do you need? What tools and services do you need around to, to put together this agreed upon framework, which can then be implemented uh, by all Australian universities? And that 
program, it's currently in the public consultation phase. So we've done the first draft. The first draft is on Zenodo and available for anybody to access. And we're doing some webinar series around that. Um, and then we'll adjust it and uh, we'll, we'll uh, currently have those 25 universities are each doing projects to road test the framework and bring that feedback. So that, that's just one example. I think that's a good example, though, because it's, you know, we have 42, 43 odd universities in Australia. That's a lot of universities, 25 out of that collaborating and with the public consultation, you know, we hope that the others will be involved in this as well. Um, but to get to your quote, uh, question around CSIRO, I think the CSIRO adds a huge amount to our national research capabilities. You know, they're the linchpin of Australian uh, science research, both past, present and future. And they're a particularly strong link between research and industry. And um, I wanted to tell a bit of a story here about CSIRO's importance because uh, I want to look at, uh, for example, you can argue about the cause, but it's generally accepted now that our climate is changing dramatically. And we're all feeling that with lots of extreme weather events. Um, in Brisbane, where I live, we had floods just earlier this year, which, you know, huge chunks of the city were underwater. I mean, I, I was cut off in my suburb for five days by the floodwaters. You know, these things are just becoming more frequent. And what uh, there was a recent finding uh, in 2021 that um, an analysis of sea temperature data that was collected from the Southern Ocean over 25 years showed the evidence that the potential for Antarctic ice sheet melting has been hugely underestimated in past studies. Um, and I'm really sorry to have to share that with your listeners because nobody wants to hear about that uh, and the resulting sea level rise that could, could result and could have dramatic impacts here. So the way this data was collected, it was on board a French Antarctic resupply vessel between Hobart and Antarctica over um, a number of years, uh, 25 years. And this data, this was a volunteer merchant vessel um, and they're used to routinely gather observations and they're known as ships of opportunity. I kind of love that term. Um, and they're a cost effective way of collecting oceanographic data for measuring uh, the speed uh, of change in the marine environment. And CSIRO is part of a consortium that operates uh, Australia's uh, IMOS, uh, Integrated Marine Observatory, which is enabled by the Empress program, so one of our sister programs. And IMOS has a Ships of Opportunity program that's operated by CSIRO, and they do the quality control and sharing the data with other institutions. Um, so when they record the ocean temperature, they use uh, ocean temperature probes, which they throw overboard. And um, at regular temperature, at regular interview intervals, this um, these probes send the temperature data up the wire that they throw down at various uh, depth levels to an onboard system. And amazingly enough, within minutes, people in Hobart, Tasmania, which is uh, one of uh, which is the closest to Antarctica of Australian states. They receive this information um, in the CSIRO, who uh, sit in IMOS there, and they share it with a global network for the transmission of meteorolo meteorological data. So within hours, that kind of data from a, from a ship of opportunity is available to weather bureaus around the world, which is just fantastic. And it's also added to the Australian Ocean Data Network portal and with very minimal human intervention. So where the partnership between CSIRO and ARDC comes in here is that we provide a vocabulary service uh, to support FAIR called Research Vocabularies Australia. So if you think about it, if you want to aggregate 
aggregate data that's collected from one of those vessels on an international scale, you need to make sure that the data is labelled and described um, in a systematic and uh, agreed upon ways. For example, you know, are you calling it sea temperature or surface sea temperature? You know, and these, uh, you do this by using a community agreed upon vocabulary. And that's the service that the ARDC provides in Research Vocabularies Australia. Uh, so it's used by vocabulary managers, ontologists, data managers, librarians, and so forth, and for researchers as well to create, maintain, find access, and reuse the research vocabularies. And you can access those through the RVA portal, which uh, CSIRO does, and uses it in the Australian Ocean Data Network portal. So that's, that's one example, and I'd like to share one other that's quite interesting, um, and that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Australia where they say, you know, we have very strict um, quarantine laws. Um, you know, we don't want invasive species coming in this country. And if you've ever come here, you hear this hugely long announcement on the aeroplane and you have to fill out a very, very long form about how what you're not carrying on board. And this is really important. So one example of this, and this is leading to a collaboration that we have uh, with the CSIRO looking at invasive species. So the cane toad is one example. So they introduced the cane toad, which is this um, toad from South America back in 1935 to, to eat the cane beetle. So a beetle that was destroying sugarcane crops in North Queensland. And I think it was, was less than 100 toads, like around 45 toads. And they didn't just eat the beetle, they ate everything. And they multiplied at a phenomenal rate and they started to... Uh, Basically, they, had, they have a toxin that they spit and it kills most of our native animals, especially the ones that normally eat frogs, frog eggs, you know, like birds, reptiles, mammals, things like that. And they produce way, way faster rate than Australian frogs do. And so now there's over 200 million toads in Australia, 200 million. I mean, that's more than people, right? They're like the whole top half of Australia is just cane toad territory, especially along the coast. And many a Brisbane, where I live, hot summer night is punctured by the calls of cane toads or the sight of them on a wet road, uh, just everywhere. So um, that's a terrible situation, really. They've been linked to species uh, extinction as well, especially the northern quoll has been, you know, is linked to the introduction of the cane toad. So it's really important that we monitor species. And in one of these national data assets programs, you know, we're looking at um, delivering a reference quality data assets on a national scale for pests and invasive species um, that can help the development and up an uptake of genome-based approaches to the management of these species, which is really going to be beneficial for Australia, the environment and the public who will benefit from a reduced public health risk and the, the impact and the lack of, you know, you have extinct species, you have a lack of diversity in species, and I think that's a very terrible thing. So there is uh, one project which we're collaborating on. So very many examples, but I think it's nice to tell stories. So <laughs> there's a couple of <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, well, thanks for the story. Absolutely. Um, so, so actually, the next uh, the next question follows quite nicely from that. So, uh, the ARDC and and also ARDC as as an organization, but also individuals who work at the ARDC, like yourself, are also active in international organizations and forums forums like the RDA. Uh, you you've just been describing actually some of your your other 
your examples in your stories how the RDC works on on projects uh, with international organizations like the the French example you just gave. But uh, in terms of, of organizational activity, so what kind of um, how does the activity that you uh, both you as individuals and also organizationally do um, with organizations like the RDA? How does that feed into the ARDC's own development plan? Mm. So personally, I get a big kick out of international collaboration. Uh, I think research is international, increasingly international. You know, it's increasingly multidisciplinary and therefore the challenges we have around data and data management, data sharing, fair data are also international in scale and we need international solutions. And it is wonderful to be able to come together with people from around the world who are trying to solve a common problem. And uh, having, having all those brains in the room together, it's just a joy to work with clever people internationally trying to solve some of these problems and do some really practical solutions. Um, and I think one of the really great experiences I've had in RDA, uh, one of them was with uh, Ian Hanaskowitz, who's, uh, who was the head of research data at um, Springer Nature and is now at PLOS. Um, and he and I uh, co-chair a group in RDA called Data Policy Standardization and Implementation. It's probably the sexiest name in RDA. <laughs> Um, but uh, the, we, we have other co-chairs now uh, as well um, from JISC in the UK. Um, we have Rebecca still from Springer Nature and we have uh, um, another colleague, Simon Gowdy, who's um, also there from Wiley in Australia. And our group looked at journal data policies as a low-lying fruit, like how, you know, the thing is that uh, journals, editors can decide the policy that they have for share for sharing data, underlying articles. Um, and uh, so while a lot of publishing houses support FAIR, it's still up to the individual journal editors to make their decisions. And, uh, you know, the policies were really scattered, very hard to identify. Um, you know, they were so different that just couldn't even build a registry of research data journal policies because... They just couldn't find any synergies between them. This is back in around 2015 or so. And that makes it very challenging for researchers to comply with the policies. Like, which data are you asking me to share? How am I sharing it? Uh, you know, lots of questions around that. So our group got together and I met Ian through RDA. We, I was doing some work with journal editors here. Uh, through ANS at the time, and he was doing his work in Springer Nature. And we came together um, with a bunch of other people. How can we solve this problem? And we came up in the end with a journal data policy framework, a master framework that went through several iterations of RDA plenaries and different kind of input, and that was published. Um, and it is suggesting the type of elements that it, it's guiding editors through the type of elements you can have. And it's, you know, there's a matrix there so you can decide what strength you want your data policy to be. And that has been reasonably widely adopted, you know, and particularly in the Springer Nature uh, Journals house, um, but, but also by other, uh, there's a lot of other examples where it's been adopted. And I think it is one of RDA's uh, you know, good adoption stories actually of an output there. And I think that is fundamental, that is tackling something that's quite challenging. You know, if we can change some of the policies, we'll, you know, we'll change some of the, um, 
you know, through policies in data, you can change uh, how much fair data is available, basically, is what I'm trying to say. So it's it's something that's had quite a big input impact. Um, and another one, of course, I've collaborated, uh, Chris Erdman from American Geophysical Union and I have collaborated around the top 10 fair data things, which was quite a lot of fun. You know, that involved uh, ARDC and library carpentry at the time he was in library carpentry and a bunch of other international organisations. And that was great because, you know, we were looking at resources that helped different research disciplines, researchers in different disciplines learn about FAIR and how to make their data FAIR. And we kind of, um, it was like a rolling thing around the world. So we'd start in Australia and we have different groups come in on Zoom who were developing these things. And then when I went to bed, I'd hand over to Chris and he would handle the nighttime for me and the daytime for him. And, you know, uh, that we'd had some people from Europe come in as well. And it was just fantastic. And we produced a number of really good resources in FAIR around that. So... Uh, I really enjoy the international collaborations and I think good things have happened through them and will continue to. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, more, more, great, uh, more great stories and, and examples. Uh, so another, another um, example, perhaps, which touching coming back to one of the, or bringing in the international theme and also an area where you mentioned you were involved maybe earlier in your career, uh, which I find particularly interesting is this, this area of, of PIDs. So, You've already actually told us a bit about your your own interest in PIDs and some of the work that you did also internationally, the pre-ORCID, you said. Um, I'd like to I'd love to learn more about ARDC's current involvement with things like IGSNs and more generally how PIDs fit into you've already referred to them several times, but how PIDs fit into the overall RDM plans for Australian research. Yeah, thank you, Rory. Uh, so I think persistent identifiers are really essential to identify site track and link research. Uh, you know, uh, for example, if you if someone has cited a piece of research and you click on that link and it you lead it, it takes you to one of those page not found errors. You know, I mean that that's okay if you're shopping for shoes <laughs> and you don't get what you want. But if it's actually research and you're saying this is the data that underpins my research, it's a really terrible thing. I mean, it it leads to questions of your integrity, I think, and the integrity of your research. So you need to be able to persistently cite something, and that thing needs to be linked to other things. So if you're citing data, that data needs to be linked to the article and the researchers that produced it and the organisations that they're part of. And the way to do that is by using persistent identifiers um, such as DOIs, which I think most researchers are familiar with, and ORCIDs, certainly in Australia, most researchers uh, are familiar with an ORCID as a way of identifying themselves uh, from another researcher of the same name and being able to link to their uh, research works. Um, and I think what people don't know as well is that some of the major PID providers, uh, PID meaning persistent identifier, uh, Datasight and Crossref and ORCID, for example, they exchange the metadata that's collected around some of these PIDs, which enables that rich linking to happen. And that's really important because then you can say this researcher uh, produced, it got this grant, produced this data, and these articles were the result of it, and they were linked to this university. And, you know, this all helps to tell a story of their research 
to give someone who discovers that research um, an idea of where it came from um, and to be able to build on that research uh, because we really don't want people reinventing the wheel. We want research data out there to be reused um, and it also helps with impact tracking and things like that. So that's all really important stuff. Um, there was also a study done, uh, UK PID, cost-benefit analysis, which was done by a group called More Brains Cooperative uh, in the UK. Uh, and uh, they, they found that you could save 5.67 million pounds over a five-year period in the UK from investing in persistent identifiers. Now, that might sound like a lot or a little, depending on where you sit in the ecosystem, but it was it was the bottom level savings that you could make. And it's not just the savings, it's also the accuracy that you get from using PIDs rather than retyping or rekeying information. Because this uh, was their, um, it, their analysis was based on a single reuse of metadata and you can reuse the metadata collected with a PID many, many times. So I think it's a really important area. It's certainly one I'm very passionate about um, and that I've been involved in for a long time and that those solutions do have to be international. And in ARDC, our PID partner, we offer PID services in partnership with the global PID providers like Datasite. Um, and IGSN, yeah, the international, I think it's generic or general sample number now, uh, it was uh, GEO, um, but it can be used for a range of physical samples collected during the course of research. And I was involved in the IGSN 2040 project funded by the Sloan Foundation, which resulted in a partnership between IGSN and Datasite, uh, where Datasite will help particularly with the technical infrastructure underpinning IGSN. So we will look at, you know, transitioning that into the DOI infrastructure um, and making use of uh, data sites, uh, you know, global reach there and experience as a PID provider. And I think that's a very important uh, partnership for the IGSN to have. I think it's really important to link, uh, you know, that in research, all the different things used to produce a finding are cited somehow as well, samples being one of them. I do think we need to find a way to do that effectively so that researchers don't have to say, you know, <laughs> list 10, 20, however many different PIDs uh, in the citation, but maybe there's just, you know, the one uh, link that resolves to a page of all the things that were cited. And I believe there's a group in RDA looking for this, uh, looking at that, uh, kind of model. Um, but the identifiers themselves are critically, they are mentioned in FAIR, they're an underpinning part of FAIR. Um, and in our um, national data assets projects, you know, we, we ask that, um, that those co-investors, those projects comply with the FAIR principles. So they do need to use the identifiers. And we, in ARDC, we offer them free of charge to the Australian research sector. Great. Yeah. Um... It's really, I think it's, I think one of the, of all the areas of things that are happening at the moment, and it is extremely, uh, there's, it's very, there's a lot of activity going on related to RDM and FAIR, but to me, PIDs are one of the most, uh, most exciting and also the most, the most promising. And, and in some ways, uh, I think it's like, it seems likely as, as you were just telling us that in the next few years, the, the investing in PIDs infrastructure is going to really pay off with with some actual practical, um, practical achievable things which can happen in the relatively short term, and that's that's important for um, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, so great. 
Yeah, I think we, we also need to uh, sort of get a really nice workflow happening of which PIDs do you need to implement and when. Uh, so, you know, when do you need a Crossref DOI for your grants? Uh, you know, when do you need a RAID for your project? You know, uh, when do you use a DOI for your data or other materials? In Australia, one of the cutting edge discussions is around the identification of instruments and the description of instruments. That's a very, we have a community here that's actually linked into the RDA there so that we have a two-way street there where we contribute Australian and New Zealand case studies into the RDA PIDs for Instruments group. Um, and people from that community go to the PIDs for Instruments group and bring that information back to Australia. So, and ARDC is the main catalyst for that connection between uh, the communities of practice trying to solve common problems in Australia and the international community that's solving a similar problem. So that's a really, really nice model that we have there. Yeah, okay, so now I'm gonna make a pitch because uh, another area which I think is uh, deserves more attention is the issue of, of how PIDs fit into, into tools because PIDs don't exist in, in a vacuum. They're carried through tools and tools allow passage of data and metadata. So my pitch is for a, an RDA Birds of Feather, which is coming up in uh, June, uh, where we've gathered together a number of people, including Chris Erdman, uh, to talk about the issue of, uh, of interoperable tools and PIDs. Um, but, but that's another, another area, but, but yeah, but, but, you know, as I really think this is something where there's actually concrete progress being made. And in some areas of fear, it seems like, wow, things take forever. And it's, it's a nice, it's a nice theory. It's a nice idea, but how are we ever going to get there? But I feel like with PIDs, we, we actually are getting there and, and, and it produces some tangible results, which are, which are visible both to people in administrative roles, but also to researchers. So I, I, anyway, I think it's a, um, you know, it's great. And, and thanks, thanks to you and other pioneers who saw this years ago and maybe the tangible results weren't so clear. Uh, we're, we're now uh, on the verge of, uh, you know, kind of um, some major breakthroughs, which is, which is great. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, so one of the challenge, one of the things I hear often from um, people who are advocating fair data is it, uh, I can't convince researchers it's taking too long. You know, it's very frustrating. And I think uh, we don't like to talk about that, but that's often how it feels. It can be very challenging. And I always like to reflect back then, having been in, involved in this area for 10 plus years now, that 10 plus years ago, we didn't have, in Australia at least, we didn't have a national data catalogue for research data discovery. We didn't even know, you know, Anne's in the early days had a project called Seeding the Commons, which helped universities go out and talk to their researchers and find out what data they had, because it wasn't even there. You know, uh, 2014 was the time that PLOS introduced one of the earliest research data uh, sharing policies of a journal. You know, uh, it's all fairly recent if you look at timeline. It's just that we're in uh, an age where everything's Instagram, one minute it's going to happen tomorrow, and it takes a bit of time, you know, but I believe that we have been moving. You know, we have seen great progress, um, and ORCID didn't exist until, what, 2011, you know. Now look at the massive uptake of that and look at the benefits and the way it is being used. Uh, there's certainly... So one a case study recently in Australia, Professor Joe Shapter at University of Queensland uh, was involved in a, a case study of ORCID here. He said he saved around three to four days 
per grant application with the Australian Research Council because of ORCID, because of having an ORCID. And that's a massive thing to be able to say. And we didn't have that. So people, bear in mind, we are making progress. Uh, <laughs> it is happening. Just be a little patient, uh, keep working away, you know, and I believe we'll continue uh, to see advances because now we see what most major journal publishing houses are exponents of FAIR. You know, uh, we have got some of the infrastructure now that we never had before. Uh, so things things are happening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we've already talked about your your activities in the RDA, and you're you're a shining example, I think, of something that's happily quite common in the research data management community, which is which is also participating in in quote unquote voluntary activities and organizations that have a an RDM or an open science focus. And I believe currently you're on the board of, of Force Eleven, so which is a, a very different type of organization from from the RDA. So how did that come about, and how are you finding it? Yeah, thank you for the uh, the comment and and the compliment as well. Uh, so with Force Eleven, uh, so I was involved. I was approached by Cameron Nalen uh, about five years ago to uh, when they first set up FISCI, the Force Eleven Scholarly Communications Institute in California. Uh, to to run the it wasn't then called fair data actually because the principles had only just come out I think and it wasn't really gathering a lot of steam but to run the the data in in the scholarly communications lifecycle course at Fisky uh, so I went to California and ran that course and I've done it for the last five years uh, now called fair data and uh, I just I got to know a lot of the Force Eleven people. And um, it felt amazing to be part of that, uh, the researchers who come to that. I mean, I, I'm always a little intimidated teaching that class. It, it really, I've had people in there from NASA, you know, people from Scripps Oceanography Institute, you know, uh, <laughs> people uh, who I feel know quite a lot more about data than me. And yet what I do is create a community of learning there where I share my knowledge, but also the community learns from each other and shares their examples. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. I, and I think uh, Fisky has translated to online um, and a 15-hour five-day course has gone down to, you know, just three hours. So it's not quite translating as well. But that is how I ended up uh, also running for the Force 11 uh, Board of Directors. Uh, most of my and, – and that has some brilliant people involved in that, and I've not had the availability to really contribute in the way uh, that's needed to Force 11. Uh, that board, the bo there's are a lot of board members there doing wonderful things uh, to, to keep that going. Uh, uh, and I mean, Force is the home of the Fair Data Principles, which is very important and hosts a very good conference around scholarly comms as well. But you're right in that it's not as well aligned perhaps as some of the work I do in RDA. And uh, I, I think I tallied that I was involved in 11 different international initiatives, most of them as co-chair, and I needed to look at my list and work out what I could give my energy to. And most of it lately has gone to uh, CoData's Global Open Science Cloud Initiative. I'm a co-chair for the Data Interoperability Working Group there, which is looking at uh, setting up ways in which different, different open science clouds, you know, that are national, regional, local in one country can interoperate with other 
uh, open science clouds. And uh, I think that's a really great uh, initiative to be involved in. Um, and I'm also uh, putting a lot of energy into the national PID strategies uh, working group in RDA as well, which is looking at how do we get national PID adoption, uh, what is, and to, to facilitate what other countries are gradually moving towards, which is we can't, you know, we have an ORCID consortium, we have a data site consortium, you know, people are asked to pay money here, pay money there. There's a lot of PIDs out there. How do you work out which ones you and you should invest in and how you approach them? And that's, so we're, we're funding an Australian PID cost benefit analysis, the ARDC is, in conjunction with the Australian Access Federation. Um, and that's going to help us um, shed a bit of light on the national PID strategy and where we should move to there as well. Yeah, let me just pick up on that interest. Yeah, thank you. Uh, pick up on one of the um, themes that you just uh, touched on there, which which uh, uh, which I think you're you're well placed to to comment on, which is interesting. So if you look around the world, there's there's ARDC, where, which is obviously the focus of our discussion today, but there are there are other. Every country uh, has interesting research data management initiatives going on, and some of them are. I think particularly EOSC is, of course, uh, the you know the 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 beast in the uh, in the shop or whatever. Uh, but then also, I think the the NII Research Data Cloud in Japan is is hugely impressive and and very important and and seems to be less well known uh, even even in the research data management community globally. So just briefly, how does and, and ARDC is clearly a leader as well. So how do you how do you think of, as an organization, how do you think about, as you're saying, um, um, even keeping abreast of what's happening in, in some of these other jurisdictions? Uh, and then, as you say, trying to make sure that you don't, what, what we don't want is some kind of balkanization where everybody has great things, but they don't really work together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, ANS, as I mentioned, was one of the founding members of Research Data Alliance. So that's always been a priority area for us. Um, and I don't know how many international organizations are represented in RDA now, but there's a lot. And I think that's been a very good vehicle for us because its focus is data and our mission is data. So we have to have things that align with that. Um, so uh, the co-data co work on the open science cloud is another example uh, as well of that. Um, but I think it's uh, it really is about developing that model for how our local communities of practice can work with the global ones and how we can push information to them and bring information back um, and work on solutions together. So it is very hard to keep track of things. It really is. Um, and I think we do a fairly good job of it. Uh, the other thing I think we've noticed, though, is, you know, under COVID, you know, uh, uh, it has been harder because the RDA plenaries, in my personal opinion, is that nothing beats the face-to-face -face RDA plenaries. Uh, the online plenaries, you just don't get the same hallway chatter that leads to something. For example, that RDA data policy standardization group that I mentioned, uh, you know, Ian Erg organized that as a rogue birds of a feather session. It wasn't even in the program. It just came up. 
you know, that was when we were in Denver in 2016. And that and the, that group uh, resulted from that. It wouldn't have online because we just wouldn't have had that chat. And also Australians are at a huge disadvantage with online because of the time zone. So it, it, the international has certainly taken a toll for me personally since we moved online because doing 1am meetings and things like that is really quite draining and it makes you pick and choose more than you'd like to and actually going somewhere and having dinner with somebody and trying to or group of people and discussing some of those common problems nothing beats that and I don't think we'll get back to the same level of travel and I'm not suggesting that we do but uh, those opportunities are precious and I believe we should take advantage of them when we can get them yeah indeed yeah okay so let's um let's uh, let's uh come back and wind up zeroing back in on the ARDC. And, and I believe it's the case, or you've said it's the case, that verification of data is a driving theme of the various initiatives that you're spearheading in the data and services group. So to round off our discussion, could you comment on, on one or two of the main strands of current interest and how they fit together to facilitate FAIR principles? Mm. Yeah, I think uh, one of the... Uh, elements in the room is one of the things we don't like to talk about is the lack of rewards around data. That's, that's still, I believe, the elephant in the room or the, the major challenge there is, uh, you know, researchers still don't get tenure for their data. You know, they get it for the articles and their rating of their articles, you know, the ranking of their articles and so forth, you know, and that's really then you're sort of almost asking a researcher to, to share the underlying data because what is the reward for them and there's been a lot of uh there have been huge shifts there um in in um you know there's definitely some research that's been done that shows the more data you have out there you know the higher your chance of citation you know for your research overall you know it is of public benefit to have your data out there journals are asking you to make your data available, etc. We have shifts in that area, but I believe we need more shifts in that area uh, to happen to really push uh, the fairness of data out there. And I mean, a lot of data is an investment of public dollars, and it would be really nice to see that publicly available. Uh, but having said that, there's some data that can't be made publicly available, you know. Uh, and so we, ha we have a program uh, called Hassander, our Health Studies Australian National Data Asset, and that's looking at clinical trials data and how we build infrastructure to support the management and sharing of clinical trials. Um, and that's a huge undertaking and not all clinical trial data will be able to be made public. So how do you create an environment where it can still be discovered and you can still get that request off to the group that needs to be able to approve it. So sensitive data and the management of sensitive data is a really hot topic. Uh, machine readability of data is another one. Uh, data licensing is huge here because if, if the data doesn't have license on it, how do you know how you can use it and reuse it? That's, that's another really big issue um, uh, that we need to tackle. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we would like 
people to do more than just the minimum, I think. You know, we want to see the maximum here. Uh, it's fair. I, I've heard fair best described as a continuum, <laughs> you know. So where are you on the continuum and how do we get from the start of the continuum to the end of the continuum so that we can get the best outcomes for research, uh, you know, uh, impact basically uh, on on uh, over on, on all of us on global society you know on people and our environment it's really important that data is made fair and that we get as much of that data out there and available for use and reuse as possible okay well natasha thank you so much for that uh, extremely informative and uh, and inspiring conversation Thank you, Rory. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's been wonderful to have an opportunity to talk about this, and I hope that your listeners found it interesting uh, and they can feel free to drop me a line if there's anything that, um, you know, caught their interest there that they want to talk about further. Okay, fantastic. Okay, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. The Fair Data Podcast is provided by fairdatapodcast.org and produced by Meroz Ahmed. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Fair Data Podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. UK, 5 p.m. Central European time, and I'm afraid I'm afraid probably at not a very civilized time in Australia, but uh, you can listen to them anytime you like. Look forward to seeing you next week.